I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. Baselayer is sponsored by Diginex and by its digital asset exchange, Equas. As an exchange, Equas is focused on delivering innovative product compliance, fairness, and most importantly, trust. In a time when institutional investors are beginning to seriously review digital assets for their portfolio, these are key elements necessary to build bridges to new investors. Equas currently provides digital asset spot trading and perpetual futures, and plans to soon offer dated futures and options. Parent company Diginex also provides capital markets advisory, asset management, and custody. To check them out, you can go to diginex.com and equos.io. That is E-Q-U-O-S.io. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Sid, who is the founder and CEO at Arbol with me today. Sid, how are you? Hey, David. Thanks for having me here. Looking forward to this. This is a nice kind of cross on my background prior, prior to digital assets. I focused a lot on sustainability. And Arbol is a software platform that connects end users with innovative weather risk management solutions at lower costs. And we're going to talk about everything that's happening there, the use of smart contracts and things on digital assets and blockchains. But before we get too far into that, you have prior experience in the financial industry covering the interest rates and commodities in both quantitative research and trading roles. We love that because, again, to reemphasize, there is many people who have crossed over into this world of digital assets and blockchains from traditional finance. So give us a little bit of a rewind. Tell us a little bit about your past um, and kind of what inspired you to really launch Arbol and kind of get in- involved in this world of digital assets and blockchains. Sure, David. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, I, I came out of Harvard in 2005 uh, with a bachelor's and master's in applied math and statistics. So pretty much my entire life has been, uh, you know, on a quant uh, path. Uh, I did interest rates for the first five years. I wrote a book on the topic that's used in a number of uh, colleges. And I, I really enjoyed that market because it taught me a lot about how markets in general work. Uh, you, most markets to some degree are driven by the cost of capital and, you know, the cost of the risk free rate. And so it was a very good learning experience for, uh, you know, someone coming out of college and just entering finance, not knowing much at all. Um, in about 2010, early 2010, I joined what was then a startup hedge fund. And I was the first employee in a pod focused on commodities. I always had a strong interest in commodities, the ships, the pipelines, the terminals, all these things were uh, fascinating to me, how they interacted with the financial markets. And, uh, you know, I started not knowing um, pretty much anything about commodities at the time and just learning via data, back testing, really understanding how fundamentals uh, from a quantitative angle 
and price action, uh, you know, related to each other. And this was across a host of really uh, interesting markets from, you know, the oil complex, gasoline, diesel, to natural gas, to the agricultural complex. So working with corn, soybeans, cattle, hogs, sugar, coffee, and then the industrial metals, uh, you know, lead, copper, zinc, and uh, uh, aluminum. And this was a great uh, sort of, uh, you know, role to learn a wide array of markets, but in in a in a detailed way uh, with regards to how their fundamentals operate and really go deep dive. You know, I've visited sugar refineries. I've visited, I've done crop tours as as a result and gave me a good grounding in how you know real world businesses work uh, in these very important industries. After that, I uh, ran a portfolio. I got a chance to build my own, um, you know, trading desk of sorts and uh, run, uh, you know, agricultural uh, trading at a trade house where I was in charge of basically building something from scratch to about 200 million in capital uh, running, um, you know, trading corn, soybeans, wheat, uh, cattle, hogs, uh, sugar, coffee, cocoa, the whole agricultural complex uh, around the world. Um and lastly, I was at uh, Citadel, one of the world's largest hedge funds, focused on bringing machine learning and AI into the fundamental analysis of these industries. Um, aside from my main career path, I've also consulted, uh, you know, sovereign government uh, entities in the Middle East on commodity industries and bringing quantitative techniques to the oil industry, to solar as well as to general, uh, you know, commodity investing for um, family offices. So that's, uh, that was my background up to Arbol. And one of the things that I, you know, constantly noticed was how difficult it is for many types of businesses to manage risks around uh, weather and a whole host of other local risks that are external to their expertise or control, but constantly set them back. So, you, you know, you take the smallest farmer for whom, you know, one drought can mean the difference between going into debt for life or uh, having a decent year. And, uh, you know, you can take it to the largest commodity businesses now faced with a host of, uh, you know, risks that are growing by the day due to climate change from hurricanes to wildfires to, um, you know, uh, you name it. And when you think about these uh, weather and catastrophe risks, we all face them, and yet many, many businesses don't have any real coverage against these things. Uh, they are essentially exposed to these random events that can set them back, and this makes it very difficult to plan ahead for the future, to invest in uh, the future, to grow, and this is especially problematic in developing countries, but it actually is a you know growing issue everywhere. Um, and so one of the trends I noticed was that parametric insurance, which is insurance that pays based on data, was, you know, starting to take hold. And parametric insurance um, is very much akin to things like derivatives and other uh, financial instruments that Wall Street had been working with for a long time in the financial markets arena. And there had been sort of small forays into weather derivatives and things like that. But really, the full potential of this concept was uh, very much, uh, you know, uh, limited. And so 
Arbel essentially is a culmination of a lot of my different uh, experiences around, you know, looking at how we can bring users on one side, which may be commodity or non-commodity businesses. Um, you know, you have a, you run a restaurant in a vacation area and a rainy year can really hurt your revenues. Or you could be a, uh, you know, ethanol plant and you need the corn crop around your local area to do well, and a drought could really set you back because you won't have inputs. Right. So you a whole host of different businesses can be users of this concept. And on the other side, Wall Street uh, was looking for new places to deploy capital, mm-hmm. uh, to diversifying uh, industries and uh, you know uh, concepts. And right. so Arbol is the culmination of this, bringing a platform to bring those two together. So talk to us about the total, I guess you can say the total addressable market. So I believe there are some statistics from Munich Re that the economic losses from natural disasters totaled $150 billion in 2019, as we've seen the rise of obviously the effects of CO2 and obviously the effects of climate change on the world. We are seeing more violent storms and more of these types of disasters. And so talk to us about kind of the state of the state. How has that risen over the last few years? And if you have any updated statistics on 2020, what are we looking at for 2020? Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, so as you point out, the cost from natural disasters is in the hundreds of billions. Um, In reality, what tends to be the case is a lot of the, you know, uh, risks are, uh, you know, undercounted because there are many ancillary businesses that are affected that are difficult to estimate. And often when, you know, I think uh, we we are likely to uh, cross 200 billion, uh, if not this year, then uh, very soon. And these losses are rising due to the fact that, you know, as populations increase and people are living near areas that are more susceptible, say, wildfire areas or more housing in coastal areas uh, where it's warmer, but then also more susceptible to hurricanes like Florida. And you see this similar trend across the entire world in the developing world as well. So you're having larger losses from even the same types of disasters that in the past would have caused, uh, you know, less uh, monetary or uh, human uh, damage. So the the losses from just catastrophic events are rising to into the couple hundred billion plus. But in reality, when you look at the entire economy's weather exposure, you know, we, we see a much larger addressable market than even that. You have one trillion dollars of crops that are estimated to be uninsured every year. So even though many of them may not get hit next year, you basically have a system where a lot of people's livelihoods can be set back by a drought or a storm, and they have no coverage for it. You know, when we live in developed uh, urban areas, a lot of our lives are very well insured, from health to home to, uh, you know, car insurance. Uh, that starts to really go away once you get into the sort of more uh, developing world or in the commodity industries and increasingly in say things like floods and wildfires where it's actually hard to even get any insurance because the, the industry just does not have the, you know, risk appetite to cover such things. Right. So we, you know, the losses will continue to rise because we are not putting capital in the right places mm-hmm. and more and more people are going to be living in areas that are more vulnerable. 
And then on top of that, yes, many climactic patterns are shifting. You know, um, the, the storms and stuff get a lot of the uh, press, of course. But if you look at even things like cropping patterns, you know, uh, Siberia is a big grower of wheat now. You know, the, the area where soybeans is grown is going north more and more every year. Many parts of the Middle East are uh, now in perpetual droughts almost. So you're having massive shifts in what used to be normal weather. And so if you're a business or a farm in these areas, you now have to start preparing for weather that you may not have uh, the resources to just self-insure against, which mm-hmm. used to be the case. Right. I want to talk a little bit more about parametric insurance. So you alluded to it, but it pays out based on the value of predetermined metrics instead of based on damages measured by physical inspection. And so kind of break that down. What does that mean, predetermined metrics? To me... You know, the layman, I guess you can say, it sounds like there's some sort of actuarial tables that are used to measure things that could happen. And it almost sounds like there's a little bit of a prediction market there. Um, The prediction is involved in the pricing of it. So if I take a step back and take a simple example, you know, let's say that you're growing corn in Iowa and rainfall in July is crucial for your crop. So we could set up a parametric contract that says, if the total rainfall in July is less than, you know, call it, uh, uh, you know, uh, 50% of the normal, uh, you will get paid $100,000. And so to calculate the premium of something like that, there is some aspect of prediction. If you, if you are able to predict that far out, uh, one thing to note is that weather is notoriously difficult to predict after a few weeks. So, uh, but, you know, that you could have some inclination around these events. So that's where the prediction aspect comes in. But the uh, farmer or the business would get paid on the actual realized data around their farm. Now, that's a simple example. The, the key to getting adoption for something like parametric insurance is really simplicity and uh, user friendliness. So we pre-design programs. We, you know, have a step-by-step process in our boat to make sure that customers, you know, only have two or three clicks and their coverage is ready with a lot of these triggers and parameters pre-filled in based on their situation. And this is the, you know, this is what's needed to get widespread adoption instead of, you know, expecting a user to figure out, okay, these should be my triggers and this should be my you know, uh, sort of uh, percent of average that matters to me. Instead, if you tell me that you grow corn or you grow cassava or you grow uh, whatever uh, or you run a restaurant business in Florida, we can figure out what is the best sort of weather hedge for you. And it goes beyond weather. Uh, Weather is the starting place because the data is granular, widely available, especially in recent years, that has improved a lot. Mm-hmm. But it can also be based on other data sources that are well accepted. So we have actually done contracts on direct crop yields. Uh, you know, we'll, we're, uh, we're working on some contracts around uh, cloud cover or solar power, where if it's cloudier than usual, the solar power plant can get uh, some payments to smooth out their income stream. Mm-hmm. That helps them get loans. So it's uh, the 
types of data we can use, the types of data that parametric insurance can use is just limited by our imagination, essentially. And, you know, as data gets better and better, we're starting to find really interesting use cases where traditional insurance is unable to fill the gap or unwilling to. Got it. So let's talk about that. So again, you use an example, corn farmer in Iowa goes to Arbol. I'm guessing this is effectively a smart contract. I'm not guessing, I know, but you're effectively instituting a smart contract. And within that smart contract, there are obviously if, when type of statements in there. And where the real magic comes in is the data that is effectively transmitted to those smart contracts. And then that obviously continues the continuance, if you will, of the smart contract and updates it in real time. Talk to us a little bit more about that, some of the mechanics there and the work with chain link on that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so having data that's objective and you know well uh, accepted is extremely important for this, as you might imagine. And so uh, one of the things that uh, we we got started with this view that over time, this whole landscape of parametric insurance and then insurance overall, will get decentralized. But that wasn't something, a solution that was ready for day one. The blockchain space itself was not ready for it. The regulators and the industry was not. And so we took the approach of layered decentralization. So what we started with was the data infrastructure we have is decentralized. We don't, uh, you know, we don't want to be in control of the servers that are storing the data and then also deciding the payouts especially as we operate in many you know parts of the world where trust levels are uh, you know lower than in developed markets and uh, there's a whole host of other benefits that come from having that decentralized data infrastructure including uh, easier auditing and uh, knowing that it's you know tamper proof uh, at the point of audit where you know okay this data was here and this is why this payout was made um the the where Chainlink uh, you know comes into play is that you know the the oracle is essential for this having a trustworthy reliable oracle that can say hit rainfall data from NOAA or hit uh, you know uh, soil moisture data from NASA any of these data sets as we grow we uh, you know Chainlink grows with us in terms of uh, being part of our infrastructure too allow the smart contracts to ingest the data in a very reliable and trustworthy way. Uh, when we started, this, you know, was uh, not the case. We, uh, you know, we had a lot of troubles with Oracle services back in 2018. And so it's been, um, it's been very, um, you know, it's been great to see a service like Chainlink come in and solve that part of the issue. I mean, for us, Arbol is a, you know, it's it's a very involved, almost sprawling project which touches on everything from the data being one end of the chain to the capital being the other side. You know, and you're talking about derivatives, insurance, reinsurance, uh, you know, uh, parametrics in weather, yield, you know, uh, renewables and uh, marine, uh, and all these different industries that we touch. For us, we need we don't want to be reinventing the wheel for each step. Or will, uh, you know, be really, really held back. And so Chainlink was a very welcome, uh, aspect that came in on the data side where it's the, the Oracle being, uh, stable and trustworthy is extremely important 
for the sanctity of our uh, smart contracts because you know real money goes through it right and so let's talk about that um it seems that due to the low correlation i'm going to paraphrase the work from the block which was fantastic on this Due to the low correlation between weather events and other asset classes, your firm Arbel sees strong demand from investment funds to become independent capital provision counterparties. This has the potential to create a positive liquidity feedback loop, whereby capital provision becomes a standardized derivative contract on any given data set. What is the overall sentiment here? You've been obviously talking to some funds what are they thinking about this and where do you see this going into 2021 and 2022? Yep, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, it, so the thesis around Arbel was, uh, you know, twofold. One was, as I discussed, and we've discussed on the user side, why would someone want parametric insurance, right? It takes away a lot of the drawbacks of traditional insurance, the delays, the disputes, the fraud. Uh, COVID has shown that again and again as well this year with thousands of lawsuits going around uh, about all sorts of exceptions in, you know, insurance contracts that then they use to not pay during the pandemic. And these insurance contracts are thousands of pages long and you need a, you know, legal team to handle all this. Parametric takes all of this out, uh, throws all of this out the door. The other side of the thesis was the capital side. And here, the question is, why would you know, if we were just connecting the usual reinsurers with users, we are not doing enough to really address the key problem, which is that prices are too high in, in this market, in the insurance industry in general. The inefficiencies and the uh, risk price both contribute to a very high cost. So to really open up this market, you need to bring non-insurance capital, uh, Wall Street capital, like some of the places I worked at before or at, had many friends at. When we think about why would they want to enter here? Well, this market is, uh, you know, what most investment funds and hedge funds are looking for. And the reason is the diversification. When you think about, you know, how many markets have become correlated now, you know, stock markets around the world, bond markets around the world, they mostly move on a few actions by central banks following each other pretty much uh, in sync. And the old days of finding, you know, gems that are, you know, in, you invest in this country or in this kind of bond, that's becoming harder and harder. So everyone stays in the same boat, basically. Um, parametric insurance really, uh, kind of changes that paradigm. You know, if you are writing a contract on rainfall in Iowa or hurricanes in Asia, um, or, you know, cloud cover in Europe, these are not variables that are connected to uh, in the financial markets. Uh, and that's, you know, that's what capital wants right now. It wants diversification. It wants new sources of alpha. And so the, the problem with parametric insurance has been the uh, distribution. Uh, like, how do you grow this market? How do you organize this market to be a portal for capital? And that's what we uh, are starting to become is, uh, you know, a portal for capital looking for truly diversifying risk and, you know, really get uh, a wide array of capital providers. Um, in addition to the usual capital providers on our market, we also, you know, will have our own uh, uh, backing and uh, we intend to 
essentially have an open market where capital uh, providers can compete to offer prices on portfolios of risk that, uh, you know, are attractive from a risk reward standpoint. And our portfolio of risk can be, you know, uh, yeah, like I said, a bunch of drought contracts, a bunch of excess rain contracts, cloud cover contracts, uh, pretty much uh, anything you can imagine on parametric insurance can become a contract that a, a capital provider can transact in. I'm curious. This is more delving into a philosophical conversation. I want people to obviously, we'll give links to Arbel and to some of the research you guys have been doing, some of the offerings, obviously, that you're doing. But I would be remiss, obviously, in the United States here, we are going through a transition from an administration that pulled us out of the Paris Climate Accords and has been very dismissive of the effects of climate change for all intents and purposes. This is not a political statement. Uh, I am neither a Democrat or Republican. Uh, I'm just looking at the facts, and you have seen a change in the way that things have been viewed. And so now we have a new administration, and immediately we've already seen John Kerry uh, nominated to climate czar, and this administration has seemed to be uh, effectively working to address climate, and I imagine that we will probably be put back into the uh, Paris Climate Accords, you know, probably at the latter part of January of 2021. Um, And so I'm curious, with this emphasis on climate that we are probably going to see now, with the country getting back into the game on climate, do you think you're going to see a big uptick? Yeah, so uh, I mean, on the political, uh, you know, stuff. I mean, we obviously, uh, you know, uh, we 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 see this. Uh, we try to stay neutral from all the political debates, even about climate change. Right? Why it's happening is less relevant for us than how do we, act, uh, you know, build resilience against it. How do we, uh, you know, uh, broaden adaptation against climate change in the financial system? And so for us, um, you know. There are certain things that are un, uh, unavoidable if you take a look at, like I said, cropping patterns, a lot of things that businesses are seeing in terms of weather and climate effects. And this goes from Fortune 500 companies down to the smallest businesses. And um, more than politics, the biggest, uh, re- I think, the, the first leg of the adoption of Arbol uh, contracts and uh, the Arbol platform has been because people are fed up with traditional insurance. You know, you get paid, you you know you're going to get paid or not. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about clauses in your contracts. And so, you know, COVID only slowed down the traditional industry considerably more. You don't have uh, an adjuster coming to your farm or business for weeks, maybe months. Mm-hmm. You don't want to go bankrupt while waiting for a plane check. So, that's the overarching kind of thing with Arbol that we try to focus on first and foremost. When it comes to stuff like climate, I think that the uh, new sort of revamped uh, emphasis on climate will only benefit us in certain sectors. So farmers don't need the po- uh, you know politicians to tell them that the climate change is happening or not. They just know what's happening on the ground every day. But where it is going to be important is uh, you know, when you think about banks, Fortune 500 companies and larger institutions, we see that as a huge, uh, you know, uh, tailwind for Arbol and, and the grander vision of what we are trying to achieve. When you see, uh, you know, the Fed, uh, and, and this has been during the past administration and will continue to grow calls during the new one, is the Fed 
the CFTC, all the regulators are sounding alarms as to how exposed the bank uh, loan portfolios are to climate change. I mean, think of all the mortgages that are out there in wildfire and hurricane areas. Think of all the business loans in those areas and a huge host of other issues. Mm -hmm. uh, Fortune 500 companies are starting to really kind of look hard and fast at their climate risks. And what I see this at currently is at the analysis stage. You know, there's a few startups around that are really focused on the uh, analysis of how big that risk is. Once that starts to really come front and center, once banks realize that, and I'm talking every bank from JP Morgan down to the smallest banks, when they start to realize how much weather risk is embedded in their business, they will need platforms like Arbol to come and actually start to uh, hedge that risk, not just uh, measure it. And so to me, the, the, the political landscape is just a tailwind to a broader trend that uh, this awareness that's growing across our financial system that climate risk is embedded in all these portfolios and Fortune 500 uh, supply chains and every aspect of their business. And they need to start looking at uh, actually reducing this risk instead of, you know, just kind of sitting back and saying, well, you know, one in a hundred year, one in a thousand year events are going to happen. It's fine. Right. That's not fine anymore. The investors are not going to be okay. The stock market's not going to be okay with that. And one in a thousand year events are happening much more frequently than modeled. That's right. Last question. I noticed that those that are receiving payment for a claim um, are either getting it in fiat or in a stable coin. Um, and I imagine that with the maturation of stable coins, I think we even saw USDT being shipped down to Venezuela and we're seeing more of those types of things happening. You know, are you in, in the future, do you think that stable coins are going to be the means of paying out those claims more than fiat? Absolutely. I, I mean, as I said, we, Data was the first layer of decentralization, and we're doing some exciting stuff there uh, that you'll be hearing about soon. Next step will be the platform and the, the mechanics of the uh, sort of payments. And part of the reason we had to start with fiat was just to get the business going. We deal with a lot of old school industries, and the blockchain space hadn't made it easy to link between uh, fiat and stablecoin when we were starting out. But a lot of these things are becoming a lot more user friendly. And as that happens, we start to layer in more and more decentralization. And same on the capital side. You know, we want, we envision a future of decentralized insurance where many people can contribute to a risk pool. And that pool can be used to provide insurance on uh, things like wildfires and hurricanes that traditional insurance is increasingly stepping back from due to risk aversion. Right. It's the same idea that, uh, you know, of, of what securitization started in the 80s, that different risk profiles could fund, uh, you know, different sorts of uh, risk transfer. So, uh, you know, the, the idea of using stablecoin or as different central banks come up with digital currencies is absolutely in our plan. And, uh, you know, as the market matures, as the tools mature, the key for us ends up being, you know, how can we make this tool happen so that the user doesn't need to understand blockchain, digital coins, wallets, private keys, all these different aspects that I think 
make it difficult for mass adoption. Now, this mm-hmm. is changing, obviously, very, very quickly with PayPal getting in the uh, mix and many other payment processors now that uh, will be seamlessly going between crypto and uh, fiat. And I think that we're well on our path to uh, you know further decentralizing this process. Fantastically interesting. So, Sid, where can people learn more about Arbel? Uh, the website is arbelmarket.com. And uh, we have our social channels as well, which uh, I encourage you to check out. Outstanding. This was really fascinating. We're going to have you back on again next year to see how things are going. Sidja, the founder and CEO at Arbel, thank you for coming on, and we'll be catching up with you soon. Thank you very much for having me, David. Uh, good, to, uh, good to meet you. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed.